ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Has artificial intelligence finally solved one of the long-standing mysteries in biology? A news article in the prestigious journal Nature began with the headline, It Will Change Everything. DeepMind's AI makes gigantic leap in solving protein structures. The author goes on to say, An artificial intelligence network developed by Google AI offshoot DeepMind has made a gargantuan leap in solving one of biology's grandest challenges, determining a protein's 3D shape from its amino acid sequence. A scientist at the University of Maryland added, This is a big deal. In some sense, the problem is solved. Hello, I'm Eric Anderson, and on today's ID the Future, I'm joined by Dr. Paul Nelson to discuss this noteworthy advance in machine learning's impact on biology. We'll consider what AlphaFold has contributed to our understanding of protein folding and what has and what hasn't been solved. Nelson is a senior fellow of the Discovery Institute and adjunct professor in a Master of Arts program in Science and Religion at Biola University. He is one of the early principal figures in the modern intelligent design debate and a well-known speaker and author on issues relating to evolution and intelligent design. He holds a bachelor's in philosophy from the University of Pittsburgh and a PhD in the philosophy of biology and evolutionary theory from the University of Chicago. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for having me. So, Paul, we're going to focus on protein folding today, but first, maybe you just step back for a moment to see how we got here, maybe even back as far as Crick and Watson. Uh, share with us briefly what's commonly known as the central dogma and maybe give us a simple reminder on how proteins are built. What, what's the protein synthesis process? So the central dogma, uh, which was a term coined by Crick, holds that the sequence of proteins, which are built of 20 amino acids, in most cases in uh, some species, two additional amino acids are added by special hardware. We can talk about that we want later on. But let's say it's a, it's a basic truth that, that proteins are assembled from a set of 20 amino acids in the ribosome, which is the molecular machine that takes messenger RNA, which is the intermediate step in the central dogma, and reading the sequence of codons in that message uh, assembles amino acids forming peptide bonds in what is known as the large subunit of the ribosome. So the ribosome in all living things comprises a small and a large subunit. And really the, the, uh, the site of real action in terms of peptide bond formation is in the large subunit. Mm -hmm. The messenger RNA is transcribed from DNA. DNA you can think of as the read-only file. It's the instruction set that, if all goes well, will specify a protein sequence in a one-to-one -one mapping as we see it in prokaryotes or in a more complicated mapping as we see it in eukaryotes where the sequence of DNA is interrupted by what are known as introns. These are regions that do not end up in the completed protein. They're mm -hmm. snipped out. Uh, during the process. So it's a, it's a fairly complicated pathway with lots of exceptions and curly cues here and there. But in, in summary, the, the central dogma holds that DNA makes RNA makes protein. Right. And uh, working that out was the major achievement of what came to be known as molecular biology in the 1950s, initially with uh, solving the molecular structure of DNA, which Watson and Crick did in 
famously in 1953. And then the role of messenger RNA and the role of the ribosome, the process of protein assembly, the solving of the genetic code, that is the 64 trinucleotide translation table between DNA, RNA, and amino acids and protein assembly, that all followed in the two decades after 1953 and made its way, of course, into textbooks and is, you know, a basic constituent of biological knowledge today. So that's kind of an overview of the core. Now, on top of that, we have what's known as the protein folding problem. And that is the area where, I guess you could say, alpha fold represents a major step forward in biological understanding. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, so back from 53 when Watson and Crick published and moving forward, let's fast forward to 1990. We have the start of the Human Genome Project. What was the goal of that? And and how did that play into this popular perception of, you know, DNA makes RNA, makes proteins, makes us, as well as this issue of protein folding? So when you think about the human genome, it's a bit like someone standing at the foot of Mount McKinley or, you know, Everest, right? There's the mountain, I'm going to climb it, or we should try climbing it. And a number of, of leading scientists, James Watson among them, thought about this and they said, you know, really, we should, be ha- we should have the complete sequence of the 3 billion base pairs of human DNA in our hands to enable all kinds of advances, in medicine, in cell biology, you know, pick your branch of human biology. It was thought that having the human genome, the complete sequence from the 23 haploid, 46 diploid chromosomes of a human cell, that would enable really significant movement towards understanding, for instance, genetic disease or human health in, in a you know, broad spectrum of areas. And this is how the project was sold to Congress. Once we have the human genome, we will be able to solve all kinds of problems that have resisted solution up until this point. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to diminish the significance of, the, of that achievement. Having the human genome is a major achievement. The problem is, if you go back and read what was said about the human genome project prior to this actually being done, there were some predictions that were made that were far off the mark. For instance, it was expected that the number of human proteins would be well over 100,000, which turned out not to be the case at all. We have slightly more proteins than Drosophila, the fruit fly, <laughs> or, or C. elegans, yeah. the, the worm, uh, the nematode. And I mean, of course, Errors to be expected in in science. People get things wrong. You can't do science without getting things wrong. But you should really pause and ask yourself, how could very smart biologists have been so far off the mark with respect to what was going to be there in the human genome? I think, uh, from my understanding of these erroneous predictions, is proteins were kind of overrated with respect to biology in the sense that they're the nuts and bolts of life, but there's a lot that goes on in our biology. If we compare our biology, let's say, to that of a chimp, or if we compare our biology to 
to a brown trout, right? Many of the proteins are largely identical. Mm-hmm. For instance, there are many proteins in chimps that amino acid by amino acid are indistinguishable from those in Homo sapiens and us. But there are no chimps listening to this podcast today, right? Yeah. And I won't say anything about you or me with respect. (laughs) So the point is, proteins are only one level and really in, in, in an important sense, really only the most basic kind of nuts and bolts level of what it means to be a human or a chimp or a brown trout. Well, part of, part of this goes back, doesn't it, Paul, to this, and I'm not necessarily saying that the idea of DNA to RNA to proteins is wrong, because of course, that's the way synthesis works. But it, if you have that as sort of the comprehensive view of things, then you think as long as I have the DNA sequence in hand, then necessarily it follows that I have a protein and the protein does X and that's the, the end of the story. In fact, there was one, I forget who it was, but there was one of the uh, folks working on the Human Genome Project that kind of quipped that once this was done, he could put this sequence on a CD and put it in his pocket. And he said, that is me. That is who I am, you know, kind right. of approach. Right. There was, I keep in mind a statement. And again, I'm afraid I don't remember the person who said it, but I could look it up that human biology would in its complete full detail should be computable from the DNA. Hmm. You get the DNA sequence, crank it through some, some biological algorithm and output a human being on the other end. And I think one of the things that having the complete sequence, and really when it was announced that it was complete, that actually wasn't true. I remember the announcement made by President Clinton and other senior figures, I think in 2000, you can correct, it may have been 2001. In any case, you know, they had this view that we have the we have the sequence in hand. Now we're going to be able to open all kinds of doors. Well, some did, some doors did open, but not nearly as many as people thought. And part of it, as you pointed out, comes from this view that there's a there is a one way arrow running from DNA out to RNA to protein on out to the organism. And in fact, the hierarchy of genetics, the hierarchy of development physiology is much more complicated than that with a great deal more that can't be directly computed going on. 2003, actually, when the announcement was made, but there was still uh, some percentage left that hadn't been finalized at that point. But there, yes, uh, like the these very large repetitive regions. Thank you for correcting the date. I, my memory is a little faulty. So for those of us who follow biology research, um, there's so many new discoveries coming out. It can feel like we're witnessing a new language being born right before our eyes. One of the new words that we've started to hear in recent years, Paul, is proteome. What's this concept then of a proteome and why has it received so much attention? What, why is this protein folding such a key holy grail now? So you can think of the proteome as, in a sense, the protein dictionary of a species. So the proteome of E. coli, those are the bacteria that populate the large intestine of a normal human being. You've got trillions of E. coli cells in your colon. They're part of your normal digestion. That is on the order of about 4,500 proteins. So the proteome is the collection, the set of all those proteins for that particular species, Escherichia coli. The proteome of Homo sapiens 
Current estimates, I think, are about 21,000 protein coding sequences, proteins. The number bounces around a fair amount, unfortunately, because of uncertainties about, about how these structures are defined. But you can think of the proteome very much like the lexicon, to make a, a parallel to natural language, the lexicon of the functional players, the functional parts. Now, it's, a, it's an overstatement to say that proteins do all the work in cells. They do a great deal of it because of their exquisite specificity. But one thing that I've observed as a student of this area over the past couple of decades is a lot is done by RNA. Yeah. Like DNA, a carrier of information, but unlike DNA, single-stranded RNA can fold up into you know, shapes that give you functional roles in the cell. So the importance of RNA as an actor in cell biology, in organismal biology, has grown steadily, really since I was a student until today, 2022. But proteome is uh, the parts list. Let's call it that. Yeah. So just like your MacBook has a parts list, your I've got a Honda Pilot parked out in the garage. It's got a parts list. The proteome then comprises the parts list for any organism. And then, a, you know, an organism belongs to a species. So then you have a species proteome. And there's a great deal of important information in there that you would, would want to know as you start to study the biology of that particular species. So, so let me ask a little bit of a technical nuance here, or definitional question, I guess. Is the proteome typically understood as the proteome at the genetic level, or is it understood as the proteins once expressed in vivo? Well, I think for bioinformatics researchers, uh, they are working mainly off of a DNA sequence they, in silico, mm -hmm. right? In vivo, that's wet lab, and that's going to involve a great deal more labor. One of the, the beautiful things about DNA is it's so amenable to in silico analysis, right? You get a, I've got friends in biology who spend most of their day sitting in front of a computer screen, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And they're, they're running uh, sequence comparisons and they're going out into databases and looking for matches to a gene that they're interested in and so Scarcely forth. Scarcely set a foot in the lab, right? And, and never, they, they never really <laughs> do any lab work. Yeah, uh, sure. And, and so in vivo, things become enormously more complicated because the parts begin to interact. Yeah. And, and they can interact in ways that you, you might have a very hard time predicting straight off of a DNA sequence or even off of a protein amino acid sequence or from the solved structure of a folded protein because these interactions grow in complexity as you move from primary sequence, climbing up the layers of the hierarchy into the functional organism. Yeah, let's, let's dig into that just a hair and then we get into the protein folding. So here, here's kind of what I'm thinking. We have this proteome, if you want to call it that, at the DNA level. And if you look back again, adopting sort of a simplistic view, okay, we've got these proteins that are, are these genes that are going to be expressed. We're going to have protein products resulting from those. But there's a huge difference even between what we see in the DNA and what comes out the other side of the ribosome because of 
issues related to when things are expressed, how much is expressed, when things are turned on, when they're turned off. And so the proteome in the sense of the DNA sequence is a little bit different than the proteome in the sense of what's actually existing out the other side of the ribosome that's going to be interacting and first has to be folded, which we'll talk about today, but then has to interact and build molecular machines and do jobs in the cell, right? Right. And Michael Levin at Tufts University, a biologist for whom I have a great deal of admiration, a wonderful theoretician and experimentalist, recently, I think it might have been in a Twitter thread, said uh, it's a remarkable fact that that you cannot predict the three-dimensional form of an organism, even something mm. as simple as well, simple isn't the right adjective. Even as something as small as uh, C. elegans, which is about a mil- millimeter long, tiny little nematode, you can give a biologist the complete DNA sequence of a species right. and ask him or her, predict from this DNA sequence what I'm going to see that might show up in the fossil record, or what am I going to see that might land on the lip of my uh, soda can, right, buzzing away and so forth. Again, as you climb from the hierarchy of DNA primary sequence through messenger RNA into proteins, into protein interactions, into tissue structures, into organisms, climb up through that hierarchy, and the levels of interaction just run away with you. And I think we need to be realistic about this and recognize that while there is tremendous riches of information in the DNA primary sequence, biology is not DNA. Organisms yeah. are more are more than their nucleic acid. Let's put it that way. Yeah, those are really good points. So jumping into the protein folding now, DeepMind's own AlphaFold webpage, and, and by the way, I should mention for everybody, we're talking about AlphaFold 2, which is the uh, second iteration of this that was more recent. So DeepMind's uh, AlphaFold webpage bears the title, AlphaFold, a solution to a 50-year-old grand challenge in biology. And so let me read a quote from the article for you, Paul, and then have you comment on that. It says, proteins are essential to life, supporting practically all its functions. Figuring out what shapes proteins fold into is known as the protein folding problem and has stood as a grand challenge in biology for the past 50 years. In a major scientific advance, the latest version of our AI system, AlphaFold, has been recognized as a solution to this grand challenge by the organizers of the Biennial Critical Assessment of Protein Structure Prediction. This breakthrough demonstrates the impact AI can have on scientific discovery and its potential to dramatically accelerate progress in some of the most fundamental fields that explain and shape our world. So it sounds like AI to the rescue here, Paul. What's what's the impression we might hear initially from this kind of a announcement? Well, you could, you could take away the impression that the protein folding problem has been solved. Yeah. And by that, one should understand uh, that you take a primary sequence, a DNA sequence, from that, you, using the genetic code, you can predict a, an amino acid sequence. So now you've got uh, a string of amino acids, very much like beads on a wire. And I give you that string and I say, tell me what this is going to fold up into, mm-hmm. if anything, right? And do, do so by some algorithm that will work as well for another string. So I give you string A, 
and you put it through your algorithm and you correctly predict the 3D form of that protein, I give you string B, put it through the same algorithm, it outputs the correct form of protein B and so forth. That problem has not been solved. So I need to clarify something actually that I said in a blog post at Evolution News a few weeks ago. What AlphaFold is able to do is predict structure. That is, we can get into some of the details of how the pipeline works in, in a few minutes. But what it doesn't have is a physical algorithm that is able to do this independently of a lot of other information. So that in that sense, the fundamental scientific puzzle of the protein folding question, which is how do proteins fold, it remains unsolved. And that actually, when, you know, they don't, the people at DeepMind who worked on this don't claim to have solved that. What they say is if you give us enough sequences that are in what's known as a multiple sequence alignment, where you've got a bunch of sequences and you input those at the first stage of their pipeline, they've come up with an iterative solution that, that cycles that information through a variety of very, very complicated algorithms, does so multiple times, and then outputs a structure. And the fact is, they're able to output very high accuracy structures. You read a quote from a competition that I've followed kind of as a bystander since it began many years ago. It goes by the acronym CASP, Critical Assessment of Structural Prediction, I think is what it stands for. Yeah. And it's, it's a really remarkable project. What they do is, to all the labs working on this problem around the world, they give them primary sequences. And independently of that, they have the solved three-dimensional form. Mm -hmm. It's been solved by cryo-EM. It's been solved by x-ray crystallography. It's been solved by some lab method independently. So that is masked from the competitors, right? Meaning the physically it, known form, yeah. Physically known form. Yeah. It's been solved to a very high degree of resolution. So the solution is waiting. It's kept from the competitors. The competitors then bring their algorithms to the primary sequences that they've been given, and they try to solve and you know solve in the sense of predicting the structure. And this is, I think, run every two years. I don't remember the exact time frame. And then the the relative merits of these algorithms are assessed next to each other. Who got who got as close? Who got the score? Yeah. Who got the best score? Exactly. So what AlphaFold 2 has done is it's blown away the competition. Mm -hmm. And if you go online and read blog posts or listen to interviews with people who work on this problem, it's like they're all politely bowing in the direction of AlphaFold 2 and saying, well, this is over. I'm going to find something else to work on because this problem is over. That is different, however, from saying I have a physical theory Mm -hmm. You know, from first principles in physics that allows me to take the primary sequence and mathematically predict the folded structure. That problem is still unsolved. So I wanted to make that clarification because it's unclear in what I wrote at Evolution News. Yeah, and just, just to bring it uh, for our listeners a little bit, Paul, I know there's a lot of detail behind this and a lot of sophisticated algorithmic work that, 
that goes on. But is it fair to say that what AlphaFold is kind of doing is looking at known structures and then doing a comparator against those and saying, hey, if I have these known structures and I have something that comes along that's somewhat similar, then I can predict that it will likely have a similar structure. It is exactly what they're doing. They're leveraging existing knowledge, which has accumulated you know, over several decades, knowledge of protein structure, uh, the hard work that it's gone into X- X-ray crystallography and other methods of painstakingly uh, solving the three-dimensional forms of proteins. And they use that as their knowledge base to mm-hmm. run their pipeline. And I've been struggling to think of a good analogy for this. And the best one I can come up with is from natural language. So people listening to this are probably English speakers, right? Or they may know English well as a second language. But let's just take a native English speaker and fly him over to Paris or fly him over to Rome and give him, you know, a few a few hundred francs and say hang out in Paris for the weekend. How see how much of Paris you can understand in terms of French signs, French headlines, French menu, the French that you're going to see, see how much of that you can understand on the basis of the English that you know, mm-hmm. right? And maybe the, maybe this person might have had some French in high school, which they've forgotten, or they have had no training in French at all. The fact is, because of the history of English, with the Norman invasion in 1066, French or really the Latin roots that that constitute the Romance languages, entered what was basically a Germanic language, Saxon-Germanic language, English prior to the Norman invasion. Thousands and thousands of, of words with Latin ultimate derivations entered English so that an English speaker with knowledge of those root structures can actually make pretty good headway in a country speaking French or in a country speaking Italian or in a country speaking Spanish, okay? Because there's enough common heritage, enough shared root structures that person can look at a sign and say, aret, right? A-R-R-E-T. That's pretty close to arrest in English, right? Mm-hmm. What do you do when you arrest someone? You stop them. You know, I I arrested I arrested the motion of the lawn. Yeah. You know, I arrested the motion of the lawnmower because, you know, for, for whatever reason and so forth. In other words, you can take those root structures and approximate the meaning of the French word with respect to the existing English, its existing English cousin. Okay, now yeah. same yeah. As person. Long, as long as you're dealing with cognates, yep. As long as you're dealing with cognates, okay, AlphaFold 2 is doing very much the same thing. Mm-hmm. You need the cognates to get the in the multiple sequence alignment where you line up these protein sequences one with another. And it's interesting when you read the paper in Nature where AlphaFold 2 is described, late in the paper they say as the number of sequences goes down, in the multiple sequence alignment, the accuracy of their pipeline drops off dramatically, mm. which will be relevant in a few minutes as we talk about 
about orphan sequences and so forth and, and so-called intrinsically disordered proteins. In any case, let me go back to my thought experiment with natural language. Take that same person, fly him to Nairobi or fly him to Mumbai, okay, or Beijing. Mm-hmm. Now it's going to be a great deal harder to do that same kind of leveraging of cognates. Right. Because the shared cognates in this instance are going to be much, much deeper in human history and well beyond the reach of any kind of lexicon from the Romance languages or languages that derive largely from Latin. So it's a rough parallel, but I think it does a pretty good job of helping the listener understand what AlphaFold is doing. If you take away those cognates, so to speak, the protein equivalent of a cognate in natural language, your ability to make a prediction of structure drops off dramatically. Right. That was the first part of my conversation with Dr. Paul Nelson about the recent headline announcement from Google's DeepMind AI project about AlphaFold and its efforts to solve the protein folding problem. Next time, we'll delve into the flood of new evidence coming from protein studies about isolated regions of search space, intrinsically disordered proteins, and orphan genes. What are the implications of this new evidence for the protein folding problem? Join us next time to find out. For ID the Future, I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.